Hello, 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 and welcome to episode number six of 360 Fails Weekly podcast series called I Need a Time Out. My name is Marianne, and I'm your host for today. I think it's so awesome you found your way to the 360 Fail podcast. Maybe you'll think this show is so cool that you're going to tell all your friends. Okay, maybe not all of your friends, but at least two in your crew, right? Then, after you tell them, I mean ask them nicely, to check out the 360fail.com website, I want you to find a way to message me on social media and tag those two people. Because whether you're new to 360fail or not, I'm really glad you're here. And I want to give a shout out to anybody who takes precious time out of their busy day to listen to the 360fail podcast. Remember last week's episode? I gave you the sage advice that patience is a virtue and good things come to those who wait. Well, I wasn't lying. Everything is up and ready for you at the www.360fail.com website. That's right. All those links for resources, done. One spot to find 360 Fails podcast on any platform, done. Contact info, including social media links, done. And a little something about your host. That would be me. Done. But before we go further, I owe the listeners from last week's episode an apology. If you listened all the way to the end of Caregiver, then you heard me mention recovery was to be this week's topic. And clearly by the title of this episode, that is not what we're going to be talking about today. I'll tell you why. Recovery is highly individualized across all areas. I can recommend all kinds of things based on my own experiences and what worked for me, but maybe it doesn't work for you. And that's why I have the resources tab on the website. You can choose your own path to recovery from what ails you. But if you want to know what I have done to recover from trauma, abuse, addiction, alcohol, and being a caregiver, I suggest you listen to all those episodes in this series. Repetition is really not my thing. So listeners, for misleading you, I am very sorry. Let this be a lesson to us all that we should think before we speak. And besides... Your biggest source to start looking for resources can be found on www.360fail.com. Select the menu button at the top and choose what you need. Isn't that glorious? Never in a million years, you guys, did I ever think for one minute that this was what my life journey was going to look like. So grateful, friends. So incredibly grateful. Now a few reminders. If you see something that is wrong in the world, tag me and add the hashtag 360fail line. If you see something that is right in the world, tag me too and add the hashtag 360failsolutions line. We got to do this together and show the world that it is possible to have difficult conversations in order to gain wisdom and be willing and teachable to learn about the world around us and everybody in it. Only then, you guys, will we be able to stop hating on each other and learn that life and how you live it matters. So let's start stitching back together those things that have become tattered and torn in our world. It's time to act and speak our truth, even if our voice shakes. That is what advocacy is, in a nutshell. Speaking the truth, even when your voice shakes. You can either be your own advocate or have someone else advocate for you. Most of the time, it's the latter. Unless you're broke. Then you learn really quick how to speak up for yourself. That's how I got my training as an advocate. Not for myself, but standing up for someone else. We'll talk later about my experience, but for now, we should do what? Define the word advocate. 
so that we know what we're talking about, right? That's how all my episodes start. I'll give you the definition of the topic. We'll take a look at some stats, talk about my personal experience with the topic, and then offer a few solutions. After all, this isn't light chit chat, my friends. It's topics for you to learn from, whether you've been through it or not. And then the cherry on top is how can we live life better moving forward? Because once you know better, you can do better. Otherwise, you're withholding valuable information, your wisdom. All right, so Merriam-Webster defines the word advocate as a noun and as a verb. Let's start with advocate as a noun. First, one who pleads the cause of another. Specifically, one who pleads the cause of another before a tribunal or judicial court. Second, one who defends or maintains a cause or proposal, an advocate of liberal arts education. Third, one who supports or promotes the interests of a cause or group, a consumer advocate. Now the definition of advocate in verb form. One, to support or argue for a cause, policy, etc., or to plead in favor of a group that advocates for vegetarianism. Two, to act as advocate for someone or something, advocating for the equality and civil rights of all people. The online Cambridge Dictionary defines advocacy only in verb form. It states to publicly support or suggest an idea, development, or way of doing something. Hopkinsmedicine.org describes a good health advocate as someone who knows you well and is calm, organized, assertive, and comfortable asking questions. I found this description of an advocate on withtherapy.com. Mental health advocates provide support by helping others to be heard and defending their rights. Advocacy can also mean working with schools, mental health professionals, psychiatric hospitals, mental health directors, and policymakers to ensure mental health services are available to those in need. Now that we know what an advocate is or what advocating means, let's see some stats on those invisible cape-wearing heroes. Just kidding. Shockingly, there are no stats I can find on anything about advocates or advocacy, unless you are a professional paid advocate or want to become a professional paid advocate. There's far more information on the importance of advocacy than anything else. So we're going to dive right into why I really never advocated for myself and how I became a red flag advocate in the mental health and medical health system for others. I suppose you could say my first attempt at advocating for myself was when I was sexually abused at the age of four. I told my mother that someone hurt me. In other words, parent, please help me so this doesn't happen again. Well, that was not what happened. Just the opposite. I was called a liar and it was never spoken of again. In fact, it's the reason I never advocated for myself until well into adulthood. Because who could I turn to for protection and help when I was being abused? Virtually, no one. In the fifth grade, my mother did advocate for me against my very conservative and controlling math teacher. My math teacher thought my skirt was inappropriate. It wasn't. I just didn't sit very ladylike at my desk and lunch table. My mother's response when she was called in by my teacher, what are you doing looking under the desk and table at my daughter's skirt? The solution? Don't wear that skirt again. I tried to advocate for my adult self to an employer after almost being raped by the security guard. The next day, I and the security guard were escorted out of the building and we were fired. Now I started to understand that doing the right thing 
generally was not going to work out for me, and nothing about these experiences affected any kind of change. Then my oldest daughter started elementary school. She was a hot mess and a whole lot to handle, already diagnosed with ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder and on medication. I asked the school to continuously help me find the right path for her education and solutions to, rather than repercussions for, her behavior. The educator's response was generally one of, we know how she is, so we aren't going to dish out punishment that she deserves. So just make sure you get her under control. In fact, it wasn't until the end of her second grade year that the principal actually conceded to an educational psych eval for the next school year because my daughter had threatened to stab another student in the neck for getting her in trouble. However, the principal wasn't exactly supportive, and it seemed to be more of an inconvenience. That school was violating the No Child Left Behind Act. According to understood.org's website, the No Child Left Behind Act, or NCLB Act of 2001, was in effect from 2002 to 2015. It was a version of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. No Child Left Behind was replaced by the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015. When the No Child Left Behind Act was the law, it affected every public school in the United States. Its goal was to level the playing field for students who were disadvantaged, including students in poverty, minorities, students receiving special education services, and those who speak and understand limited or no English. The goal of NCLB was to provide equal educational opportunities for disadvantaged students. States had to bring all students, including those in special education, up to the proficient level on tests. They had to set targets for improvement, called Adequate Yearly Progress, or AYP. Adequate Yearly Progress goals and sanctions were supposed to push schools to improve services and instruction for struggling schools, including children in special education. These penalties didn't apply to non-Title I schools. Did you catch that? The law was supposed to affect every public school in the U.S. And then way at the bottom, the penalties were not applicable to any school unless they were a Title I school. A Title I school has many low-income students. If a Title I school didn't meet AYP, NCLB allowed the state to change the school's leadership team or even close the school. If a school repeatedly failed to meet adequate yearly progress, parents had the option to move their children to another school. And that's what I did. I knew she wasn't getting what she needed from this public school and that she would need to be moved. However, in that same year, 2010, the state of Arizona defunded a short-lived full-day kindergarten program following the recession. And my youngest was ready to start kindergarten in that fall. According to a 2016 article by AZ Central, kindergarten is not technically a required grade in Arizona, meaning the state does not fund or oversee it as it does other grades. The current school no longer offered free all-day kindergarten. Now I would have to pay for a full-day kindergarten program, if I could find one, or send her to a half-day of kindergarten for free, but pay for the daycare afterwards, because I worked full-time. The education system here was not making it easy for me to provide the most basic requirement of a parent, giving your child an education, which I am required by law to do as a parent or could be found guilty of truancy. Nice. Let's penalize the parents because the educational system is so complex 
that I have to find a completely different school for both of my young daughters now. Thank the Lord, my longtime in-home daycare person gave me a lead on charter school that was offering free all-day kindergarten. Had a school for ages pre-K through 8th grade, small with only 100 kids and a boys and girls club across from their parking lot, as well as before and after care right on site. Talk about life made easy. One location for both children to be dropped off and taken care of before and after school? Yes, yes, and yes. My only concern was that they did not have a special education program in place because they were a charter school. Hopefully, my oldest was getting enough help outside an educational setting through therapies and my work with her at home that I wouldn't need it. Well, that was great for one school year. And then I turned into an educational advocate for my special needs daughter during her fourth grade year. By this time, she was diagnosed with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, Asperger's autism spectrum disorder, and all the subsequent disorders associated with it. And because they did not have a special education program, I provided them with a binder filled with information about her disorders, the medications, the therapies, and the helpful tips for educators section. I gave the school a personalized manual on how to help my special needs child in their educational environment and in their before and after care program. Nobody on that campus knew or understood anything about special needs children, let alone a developmental disability like autism. They were grateful and also informed me that they now had a special education department and staff on site. Well, thank goodness, because I really didn't know what the hell I was doing and would have preferred trained specialists to work with my child and actually help her succeed. I also went into her classroom one day to read a book that was age appropriate about Asperger's autism spectrum disorder with the hopes of helping her classmates understand that she was not like everybody else. They switched teachers about midway that first quarter of school without notifying anyone. If you know kids with special needs, they aren't very fond of change. Needless to say, my oldest was not handling things well and her younger sister was being picked on because her older sister was a complete nightmare for the other kids, thus driving resentment between the sisters. Now they were both in counseling. I realized the special education department for this school was really unable to provide my child with the appropriate education, accommodation, and services she needed while in a learning environment. I started looking for a specialized school for Asperger's kids. Then over Christmas break that year, I received an email from the only special education teacher at that school. It was a blank IEP form, and I was asked to fill it out so we could have proper documentation of needs and services to fit my daughter through her individualized education plan. Um, I didn't even know what an IEP was, let alone how to fill it out. But I scoured the internet to figure out appropriate wording, how to set goals, what goals to set, and everything else that may be needed to assist with my daughter, including a behavior intervention plan. In my heart, I knew this was wrong. This was supposed to be filled out collaboratively with the trained educational providers, and I should offer my input. But since they told me to do it, and I didn't know anything different, I filled it out to the best of my ability. I was glad they were officially trying to help her. I needed extra outside support from people who went to school and are trained in this stuff. I'm just a mom trying to help her not-so-average child. Somebody, please help me. The last half of that school year was a complete disaster of humans and elementary education. Her teacher, whom at this point I had zero respect for, would not follow the IEP plan, 
sent me emails every day on anything my child may have done wrong. If there wasn't an email, there was a phone call from the principal. The only ally, it seemed, was the new SPED teacher. She seemed more than willing to help my daughter and totally agreed with me on all aspects of thought. SPED is short for special education. The homeroom teacher taught my child how to kiss another person by demonstrating on her own hand. This teacher also refused to allow her to go to the bathroom as needed since we were in the middle of urology treatments for overactive bladder and uresis and chronic UTI and bladder infections. Therefore, my daughter went around smelling like urine almost every day, all day. I had to provide the school with a week's worth of clothes and hygiene products every week or she would not be allowed back. So I did that. I did anything and everything these folks asked for if it meant my daughter was going to be given the best opportunity possible to be as successful as she was capable. That same teacher grabbed my child and threw her back into the classroom because my daughter became overwhelmed and was heading to the sped room for calming down. This accommodation was a part of her IEP and behavioral intervention plan, and that teacher told her no. She couldn't leave the classroom. I called the principal, stated that I was going to file a complaint against the teacher with the Department of Education. Uh-oh, panic. The principal called an emergency meeting with me and the special needs director. I had just gotten to work and had to turn around and leave to go back to the school I was just at. This wasn't uncommon. I had an adjusted work schedule because I was frequently called to the school for meeting after meeting. I could barely get any work done at my job. When I got to the meeting that day, the educators even joked that they should put me on their payroll because I was at the school just as much as they were. But the whole point of that meeting was to give me whatever I wanted to help my daughter if I would just not file the complaint with the State Department of Education. Excuse me, could you say that again? You want to handle this internally because if I file a complaint against a single teacher at a single school, then the whole school gets put under investigation. Well, I really had no beef with the actual school at this time. It was the damn teacher in charge of my kid every day that was making life worse for everybody in my family. When I say they offered me whatever I wanted, they literally asked me to sit and write a wish list for my daughter's educational environment. So I did, because I didn't care how it got handled or rectified. I just wanted a solution to end this madness. The next month, I found a school that was just for Asperger's kids and it was a private school with a hefty tuition that I could not afford. After the tour, I was amazed at the complete difference in their attitude as educators towards the special needs community and their families. You see, in all this BS, I learned in my own research that if a public school could not provide the least restrictive environment and reasonable accommodations necessary for my child to learn successfully, then the school was obligated to place them in a different school that could provide all the necessary requirements at their district's cost. I requested that the elementary school she was currently in to please transfer her to this other school I'd found that was especially dedicated to kids with Asperger's. I was denied based on the fact that they were providing the basic needs to accommodate my child. I disagree, but after touring the Asperger school, I was given a packet of info. In that packet was an advocate's business card and loads of information for scholarship programs. The Asperger school recommended that if the school I was at wouldn't play nice to call an advocate. At that point, I didn't think I needed one because the state had just started an empowerment scholarship account program 
or ESA, that allowed parents to place their special needs child in any school. They felt would best serve their educational needs and that instead of paying the school district the funding, the state would pay the parent directly, thus making the parent the school district in fact. Well, 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 I found a way around the defiant school I was at and was going to be able to place her in a specialized school for her developmental and behavioral issues using the ESA program. All I needed to do was update her educational diagnoses from ADHD to autism. The SPED department had been in fact using treatments and interventions appropriate to a child on the spectrum and had never suggested that she was anything otherwise. But initially to fast track the IEP, they tagged her as ADHD only and that meant the scholarship was only about $150 per quarter. If updated to reflect her Asperger's diagnosis, then the scholarship was about $25,000 per quarter per year, just enough to cover the private school tuition. I explained to the principal and SPED teacher that we needed to update her educational diagnosis to include autism spectrum disorder so that I could apply for the scholarship, which they didn't even know existed. Then they explained in order to do that, the district psychologist, speech therapist, and occupational therapist would need to perform an assessment and then an update could occur. Okay, that's fine. Let's get the ball rolling because I wanted to place her the very next school year for fifth grade in that school. Then we had the meeting to update the educational diagnoses. I was told that she did not meet the requirements of autism and they would not change anything. I was shocked. Wait, what? I have a psychologist and a psychiatrist who both have diagnosed her with Asperger's. In their words, in the words of the state educational system, outside doctors' diagnoses mean absolutely nothing when it comes to education. Apparently, only a psychologist or psychiatrist who is specialized in education is the one who has the actual say-so. Then I argued the fact that they themselves were using interventions specific to autism in the educational environment. Their response? True. We are. But it's because they work, not because she's on the spectrum. Okay. What the hell, people? You're talking out both sides of your face. I know something is very, very wrong in this school. And why on God's green earth would you deny a student a chance to be successful? It wasn't costing them a dime to send her there using the ESA scholarship and drive her the additional two hours per day to drop her off and pick her up. So what was the problem here? It seemed they were not going to play nice, just like the private school had warned me. So I called the advocate provided in their packet and explained the story. We agreed on her rates for employing her and another emergency IEP meeting was to be scheduled. That's when I would meet her. Over the next several weeks, I was met with opposition, ridicule, silence, and harassing phone calls and threatening emails. They didn't even know I was bringing an advocate with me. She was going to be a surprise. The day of the meeting, when I introduced her, the room turned ice cold and they literally prevented my advocate and I from sitting together. I was surrounded by every person that had anything to do with my daughter at that school and at the district level, as well as every education, psychological, and developmental professional on conference call. Their side of the story was premeditated and collaborated long before we sat face to face, which is a violation of IEP policy in case you were wondering. They went around the room and each staff member present and on the phone agreed with the new updated diagnoses of severe emotional disorder. 
I almost started crying because how could they betray me and get this so wrong? My advocate quickly figured out they were in violation of a whole bunch of policies and procedures and invoked a stopped order now, which means basically nobody can change anything on the IEP and diagnoses until we met with our lawyer. There had been enough collusion by each one of these educational professionals to start a lawsuit. Lawsuit? What in the hell? I'm just trying to get my kid the best education possible given her circumstances. So I met with the lawyers my advocate worked closely with. I handed over every email correspondence, every notation, every piece of paperwork, and recited every conversation that had been had over the course of that school year. They were appalled at the blatant discrimination and said they could start with a retainer fee of $5,000, but warned me that if this went all the way up to the administration of the State Department of Education as a lawsuit, I could expect at least $80,000. I lived in a one-bedroom, 600-square-foot apartment with my two daughters and slept on a fold-out couch. I was actually placing a wager on my daughter's quality of life against my financial instability. Done. Where do I sign? Nine days later, I got a call from my lawyer, letting me know that the school district settled and was going to update the form. Accordingly, pay for all my lawyer's fees, and in return, I was never to mention the school name again or come near the campus. Fun fact, my lawyer was shocked at the incredible quick decision by the school to settle. What she found out was that school had been red flagged for handing out autism diagnosis like candy and the Department of Education had them red flagged and had given a slap on the hand for violating policies. Do you see what happened there? They messed up and got greedy. How do I know this? The principal told me before any of this went down. One typical student is worth $10,000 per year. A special needs student with autism, about $25,000 per year. It was a way for a small charter school to rake in some cash from the governments without legitimate diagnoses. So because they got caught, they would not at all sign off on autism for my child, no matter how obvious it was, because they were under scrutiny by the State Department of Education. My only regret, that I didn't ask for them to pay for transportation to and from the new school, but I didn't even know that I could ask for that. My lawyers never mentioned a word. The rest of my work as an advocate for my daughter revolved around the mental health systems of the state, which was just as stupid as the year-long disaster with the education system, only much, much bigger. I really don't want to bore you with all the details of systemic failure, but I will highlight the worst of the worst. You ready? Here we go. My oldest daughter became so out of control and dangerous that her treatment team wanted to temporarily place her out of home into a therapeutic facility. I reluctantly agreed. Even the medical director of the agency agreed. And then, three months later, he didn't. He, for whatever reason, would not approve the request for out-of-home placement. We were stuck, or so I thought. About three months after he denied the placement, stating she did not meet the requirements for such care, he changed his mind. The day after, a local newspaper article and local TV news story broke about the systemic failures of mental health agencies and their systemic failure in being fiscally responsible. I was one of the families in the Bitter Pill article by the local newspaper. I got the call from my case manager of the good news and she quietly, off the record, congratulated me and said the interview I did probably gave me some leverage. 
While my daughter was placed out of home in a level one locked psychiatric facility, another client repeatedly smashed her head into a locker during a meltdown. You know when I found out? Three days later, when my daughter called at our scheduled call time, she explained it all to me and that she probably had a concussion and they were treating her as such. I was so pissed, you guys. If at any point in time there was an incident with either of my children at school, I was called immediately, but not in mental health, I guess. So I meticulously poured over their handbook and found not one sentence that included a policy to contact the biological parent as a protocol for injury while under their care. Do you know who they were supposed to call? Their case manager from CPS, because most of those kids were wards of the state. Mine was still all mine with full parental and legal authority over her. You can bet I raised hell with my point of contact at the institution, who was equally appalled and only found out because I called her. That facility created an ad hoc committee to update and change their verbiage, policies, and protocol. This would not happen to another parent again. Her next placement was in an HCTC. It's kind of like a foster home that the child can live in so that they can practice living in a normal house with normal daily situations in order to be reunited with their family. Those foster parents came out of nowhere because insurance booted her from the first facility without any real warning and threatened to charge me with abandonment and neglect if I didn't pick her up on her release date. I was advocating for my own safety as well as my family's. She was not ready to be home at all. Those foster parents were supposed to work with me to help reintegrate my daughter back into the family. Instead, they actually called CPS, had my daughter interviewed by police officers for federal charges against me, coerced her into making a video in which she stated she wanted to be adopted by them, lied repeatedly to me, rarely let me talk to my daughter, and then proceeded to try and take her from me legally. And I quote, I will call CPS on you every single day if I want, said the foster parent. And this was at an emergency meeting with 20 other treatment members because they wanted to disrupt placement because they couldn't handle her. I advocated for her to be placed in a therapeutic group home because my child was still not safe for me to be around. Again, if another placement wasn't found and I didn't pick her up from school that day, I was going to be charged with abandonment and neglect. Shockingly, again, and seemingly out of nowhere, a group home opens just for my daughter. The time she spent there, I did nothing but advocate for myself, again, because this time they were actually creating worse behaviors in my child than when she lived at home with me. And every time I wanted to see her or come to a family function, I was denied because we lived too far from the house she lived at. But their reports reflected that I was uncooperative and did not spend enough time with my daughter. There was one distinct time in which I advocated for myself solely against the agencies on her treatment team. I was across town checking my dying father into hospice because I was having major abdominal surgery the next day. In the parking lot of the hospice place, I begged them to please let me get through my surgery and then I would be more than happy to talk to them about creating a schedule for visitation. Not good enough. They asked, how about in two days we have another conference call? I couldn't believe it. I literally had to apologize to them because events in my life, besides my eldest daughter, were preventing them from having things their way. I agreed to call on Monday after. 
Everybody was happy, except me. I was starting to lose the desire to fight any of these people anymore. When I was caring for my terminally ill father, I called the ambulance to assist one night when it couldn't get in its bladder to stop hemorrhaging. They did nothing. So I took him to the hospital ER. It was a shift change. His bladder was ready to explode. He was crying and shaking with pain. And I went to the head nurse and asked if anyone was going to help my dad because he could die any minute. She said, sorry, we're on a shift change. Nobody is helping any patient until it's complete. One more time, I found myself shocked, but I advocated for my father and told her if she wasn't going to do something to help my father, then just give me the supplies and I would do it myself. And that's exactly what she did. My father didn't die that night because I took action. The last year of my father's life required regular interventions to clear his bladder of the tumor debris. One such solution was called a continuous bladder irrigation. It was an IV bag that continuously irrigated the bladder so that manually plunging and clearing the catheter every five minutes wouldn't be necessary. I advocated for one such apparatus in our home where he lived, and I took care of him. Hospice said no, because it was a liability, and I was not a trained medical anything. I was just the daughter, who was the main caregiver, who did the constant flush and irrigation every damn day. I was called by the director of hospice after my father passed. He asked me why my survey reflected poorly. I pointed to their mission statement, the fact that I was doing exactly what the nurses did, and that fiscally, it made more sense if a family member could do it because a nurse is far more expensive. He proposed to the board that an amendment be made to their protocols, allowing for family to receive training and assist the patient in medical care. Cheaper on the company, easier on the caregiver. Maybe the next caregiver can get the supplies they need for their terminally ill loved ones. In my big finale in advocacy for another, when my daughter was inpatient at a mental hospital for psychosis, I needed her to go to a facility that specialized in early onset schizophrenia. I had exhausted all in-house resources for my state's insurance requirements. I wanted to place her in a facility in another state that was in network. I was denied. I hired a lawyer who specialized in mental health patient and family rights. We tried every which way to get around an actual lawsuit, but the result was no. So we filed the lawsuit against the state healthcare system. I eventually withdrew that case because I couldn't get any one of the nine psychiatric professionals to testify on my behalf of the medical necessity of placing my daughter in another hospital in another state, not even her own psychiatrist. This was our last chance to really try to make a difference in her quality of life and well-being. Mostly, I withdrew the case because I did not want to set a precedent that may hinder another parent's ability to do what's right for their child. After that, I became a member of the County Human Rights Council and a member of the Protection and Advocacy for the Mentally Ill Board. If you really want to know how deep the systemic failure is, attend those public meetings mandated by the federal government for transparency in human rights. They are everywhere in your cities, states, and nation. Get involved, you guys. Nothing changes if nothing changes. And there are things that are always worth fighting for, if there is but one fool left to fight. I am that fool, y'all. And I will fight when people aren't following through on their commitments and responsibilities at a public level. I have corresponded with lawmakers, reporters, heads of state, educational institutions, medical care facilities, 
and any other person, place, or thing that meets the qualifications for a hashtag 360fail title. You can guarantee that if I ever say fail, it's because they earned it and someone needs to put a stop to it. I cannot tell you how many other countless advocacy situations I have trailblazed my way through, but I can tell you this. I cannot do it by myself. I need help and another who is willing to help, or at the very least, listen to what I'm saying. That's where you all come in. Let's be the voice that booms when it speaks the truth and affects real change in real ways in real people's lives. And on that note, I must confess that my personal life has been a whole lot more than I can handle for the past two months. In fact, I need a break. So this will be my last podcast series for a little while. It's time for me to rest, replenish, and reduce. But I will still be making my presence known and available on all my social media platforms. Just no podcasts. So please be sure to stay tuned on social media for news about upcoming events or things I'm working on. Until then, I thank you for listening to this 360 Fail weekly podcast series called I Need a Time Out. I appreciate each and every one of you for just being on this planet. I hope you do the same for others. Keep fighting the good fight. Be kind. Be compassionate. Be helpful. And be patient. Time is precious. Peace, love, light, and blessings. Namaste. Marianne.